Good morning, church. Everyone awake, blessed, highly favored, daylight savings. We went forward an hour, right? I didn't even know, but I'm feeling it. So, um, so happy to be with you guys. My name is Alberto Lopez. I serve as a missionary to this college campus with an awesome team here at this church. And if you're new here, we want to welcome you out and we want to make this church your church. So in the seat back behind you, there's a connection card. And if you fill that out and turn it in at the back, we would love to shake your hand, get to know you and meet you. So Where we find ourselves today is in week six of our Story of the Bible series. Now, this has become one of my favorite series because I absolutely love the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, well, you're supposed to because, like, you're up here preaching. Uh, Yeah, that's true, but I love what this series is about. Uh, Growing up, I didn't know what a Bible was. Uh, At our service last week, I shared how at the very first Bible study I ever went to, I think it might have been Evan, asked me to open up to 2 Timothy and I was in Genesis, just trying to find where this to Timothy is. I didn't know. Uh, and so as I began to grow in Christ, I began to open up this word for myself, and it changed my life. It wasn't a, a priest or a pastor or Facebook or Twitter giving me the word. It was me searching it for myself. And this word came alive in my heart. Later on, I found out that this book, one book, has 66 books in it tells one unified story about Jesus and how God has a plan to redeem and save us and establish his kingdom among us once and for all. And so this just blew my mind. And so what we've been doing in this series is that we want to tell this story of the Bible. And the way that we've been doing this is by highlighting different plot points in the Bible that start with the letter C. So a few weeks ago, we started off with creation, where we're setting the scene on uh, how God created the world, but more importantly, why did God create us? Then we kind of zoomed into chapter three with catastrophe, and we saw how everything went wrong. We looked at calling, where God calls Abraham and gives him a promise and says, through your lineage is going to come an offspring that will bless all the nations, and that is Jesus. And last week, Peter talked about covenant how at Mount Sinai, God gives a covenant promise with Israel and says, if you uphold this, you will be my treasured possession. And where we find ourselves today is we're going to kind of fast forward and we're going to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at David. And the C that we're looking at is called crown. And what we're going to be specifically doing is looking at this moment in the life of King David, where he is anointed king, But ultimately, we're going to see how his life gives way to the King of Kings, and that is Jesus Christ. So if you're with me, will you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word? We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. It says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse six, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, nope, not this one. Then Jesse made seven sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The word of God. You may be seated. Father, I pray that as we open up this word, Lord, that you would speak to us, Father, in a very intimate way, God. Lord, that information just wouldn't come into our minds, God, but that your word would settle in our heart, Father, on good soil. Lord, I pray, God, that as we open up your scripture, Father, that we would be transformed, Father, and convicted, Lord, to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're already introduced to several characters. We have a guy named Samuel, we have a guy named Saul, and then a bunch of sons, and then David. So to set a little bit of context, we're going to backtrack a little bit. Samuel is the prophet and judge of Israel. He is the religious leader. Uh, Israel at this point in their history had no king. Uh, their setup was that God would use judges to kind of rule the nation. He would speak to them and through them, and that's how this government was set up. Now, the only issue with this setup was that all the judges were corrupt, or not all of them, a handful of them were corrupt. And Samuel happens to be one of the good guys. Now, at this point in his life, he's getting really old. So what he does is he appoints his sons to be judges. Now, the only issue with his sons is that they were like the previous judges. They were corrupt, accepted bribery, and their hearts weren't positioned towards the Lord. And so at this point in Israel's history, we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. We go to verse 4, and Israel is demanding a king. It says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said said to him, Behold, You are old. That's just, wow. (laughs) And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So Israel was surrounded by Assyria, who represented brutal power, Babylon, who represented law, and Egypt, that represented wisdom. And all these nations had these mighty kings, and Israel just had an old judge. And the tribe of Israel saying, we want to look like the other nations. We want a king. 
So Samuel says, this thing, this pleased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. The tragic irony is that Israel already had a king, God. And yet in this moment, they wanted not an invisible king. They wanted a king that looked like all the other nations. And so according to all the deeds that they have done, and from that day, I've brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God was supposed to be their true king. And in this moment, when Israel is forsaking God, they're turning their back on God and the results are catastrophic. However, God is very gracious in answering this prayer, not by giving them the king that they want, but by giving them the king that they need. And in God's sovereign plan, this leads us to Jesus. So who is Saul? We're introduced to Saul in the very next chapter, verses 1 through 2. So verse 1 has um, quite a few names that I can't pronounce. Uh, And then verse 2 says that that he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel who was more handsome than he. So how does Saul get qualified to become the king? based solely off of stature and appearance. The Bible says that in this whole land, there was not a man that looked like Saul. There was not a man that was built like him. He visually fit the description of a king. I mean, when you think of a king, what comes to mind? Like Thor, um, Superman. I can't think of any other kings off the top of my head, but you see where I'm going with this. Saul fit this description. He had the build. He had the body. And he visually represented someone that was powerful and that could save Israel. Israel was demanding a king because they had been brutally terrorized by the Philistines surrounding them. In fact, in the book of Samuel, it says that they had lost thousands of Israelites to the Philistines. And so they're wanting a king that's going to serve them, that's going to protect them, and going to save them, and they think it's going to be this guy. So the Lord anoints Saul, and he becomes king. And Saul had a great start. Uh, he had a very strong and peaceful start. The nation, he led the nation of Israel in accomplishing several awesome military victories. Yet like most things that are introduced in the Bible that are amazing and awesome, they are short-lived because of man's disobedience. And there comes a point in Saul's life where he begins to downward spiral, where he does a sacrifice that wasn't commissioned by the Lord. The Lord commands him to take out the Amalekites, which was this neighboring pagan tribe that was brutally terrorizing and destroying the Israelites. And Saul doesn't faithfully follow through on this command And then on top of that, you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 13, he tries to lie and cover up his sin. Does this sound familiar? Genesis 1 and 2, God created something amazing and awesome. Genesis chapter 3, through our own disobedience, we ruin this perfect world that the Lord had given us to steward 
we ruin this perfect relationship, and now we're covering ourselves up with fig leaves, blame shifting, who's at fault? And this is where we find Saul. And so Samuel is distressed, heartbroken. Saul was supposed to represent this amazing king that would lead the nation of Israel into peace, that would advance the kingdom of God. And what do we get? A man that was disobedient and more concerned with his self-image and preserving himself than being humble and honest before the Lord. And like our disobedience breaks connection with God in Genesis chapter 3, Saul's disobedience breaks his connection with God. And in this case, God would remove his spirit from Saul. And this is where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 16. It says that Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Samuel is heartbroken because he sincerely believed that this was going to be the guy. This was going to be the guy that would lead our nation faithfully. And he poured into this man only to have been failed by him. And Samuel is feeling that very personally. And the Lord says, I have rejected him from being king over Israel, but there's another king that I have in mind. So fill your horn with oil and go. I'm going to send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears about this, he's going to kill me. Why? Because Saul is still sitting on the throne. If Saul finds out that Samuel is on this covert mission to go anoint another king, this man is going to get furious and try to take out Samuel. And so the Lord says, okay, I have a plan. Just take a heifer with you and say that I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Kind of sneaky of you, God, but we'll go with it. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show to you what you shall do. So God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to officiate a ritual sacrifice in the city. And God uses this occasion for another agenda. Get Jesse and his sons to attend. So tensions are very high at this point in the story. In the previous chapter, chapter 15, when God had commanded Saul to take out King Ahag and he did not do it, Samuel had to take matters into his own hands. And the Bible says that he hacked Ahag to pieces. Now that's pretty gruesome. And so tensions are very high. Samuel, the high prophet, comes into Bethlehem and the elders of that city are asking him, hey, do you come peaceably? Because we heard about what you just did in the previous chapter. Another reason why they might have asked, do you come peaceably? Is because when the prophet comes into your town, it's usually not for good news. It's usually to say, hey, you've been acting very wicked, very disobedient, very sinful, and I've come to bring judgment upon you. And so when they see Samuel coming in on the distance, they're thinking to themselves, oh crap, run. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to be a good day. Samuel, however, says, I have come peaceably. He says, consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice. So, when they, so he gets all of his sons to come to the sacrifice. Now remember, 1 Samuel chapter 9, Samuel the prophet identifies a king based off of stature and physique. And at this point in this sacrifice, Samuel has all of Jesse's sons in attendance. And what does he do? 
we can conclude from the scripture that he's about to do the same thing that he did with Saul. Choose a king based off of appearance. Verse six says, when they came, he looked at Eliab. Eliab was Jesse's oldest son. He said, surely, I mean, come on, look at him. The Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature. That's, that's my life verse. Don't look at my height, okay? <laughs> look at my heart. Because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and and made him pass before Samuel. What, What about this son, Samuel? This is Abinadab. The Lord said, nope, not this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and the Lord said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass by. The Lord said, none of these. So Samuel at this point is probably thinking to himself, the Lord has told me that one of Jesse's sons is supposed to be king. All of the sons that have passed by, you keep telling me no, what's the deal? So Samuel asks, do you have any more sons? I mean, eight is a lot. Is there just one roaming around? And there is. But Jesse immediately just disqualifies him. He says, I do have one more son, but behold, he's keeping sheep. As if Samuel's supposed to respond, okay, yeah, never mind. Let's go. But that's not what happens here. He says, go and get him, and I will not sit down until he gets here. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy, which means red, Um, not necessarily that he had red hair, but red in complexion because he was a young boy. And when it says he was handsome, that word is rendered from a word that means cute, like he was cute and small. And Samuel, the Lord said, this is him, anoint him. So they poured the cup of oil and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. Where Saul was chosen and heavily described for having the appearance of a king, Samuel begins to do the same thing in identifying one of Jesse's sons, but the Lord does not look at appearance, he looks at the heart, because appearances can be deceiving. And this brings us to our first point. God is not impressed with appearance. God's standards are different from what most of us value because he looks on the heart. God is not concerned with your earthly success. He's not concerned with you measuring up to the world's criteria. God is after your heart. David is not the king-like person you would imagine. And there's a few factors that leave the people puzzled when this young kid is just getting drenched with oil. Number one, he is a shepherd. In Israel, this is not the most coveted position. In fact, this position was mostly occupied by slaves and social rejects, and there's no real job skill set required for this position. It was funny because I tried looking up paintings or or photos of of shepherd boy David and what you get is like white David in the Swiss Alps (laughs) with like perfect sheep. 
but that's not accurate. So what I did instead is I looked up Middle Eastern shepherd boy, which is this image right here, because that's what David would have been. Uh, a young kid bored, holding a stick, wrangling animals. There was really only one way to describe this job, and it's mundane. You're doing the same thing over and over again. And when you think king, you don't think this guy. You think some child prodigy that is like amazing and super athletic and stands apart and is set apart. You don't visualize a young boy. And that's who the Lord has identified. The second thing that leaves the people puzzled is that he's young, tiny, and small, and he's disqualified by his father. I mean, it's not every day that your prophet comes into your small, obscure town five miles outside of Jerusalem that no one has ever heard about. So imagine somebody amazing and famous coming to San Marcos. And if you, and your favorite person, okay? You would probably make some sort of effort to get there. David doesn't even get an invite to the sacrifice. The father has already disqualified him from even being identified as a king. David looks more like a cute kid than a possible warrior. And outwardly, David is very unimpressive, even to those who know him best. Yet this is the one God chooses. God is, more after, God is after your heart and not your appearance. On the outside, you can maybe be the opposite of this and look like you have everything put together. You can have an amazing earthly resume, have amazing accomplishments, know all the right answers, know all the right things to say. But if the Lord were, if the Lord were to look on your heart, what would he see? Because he's not impressed with the facade or the appearance. He's after your heart. Saul's heart was disobedient, deceitful, and more concerned with his self-image. And from scripture, we know that David had a heart that was after God's own heart, that he was inclined towards loving and serving the Lord. He loved the word of God. He says, how can a man keep his way pure only by storing your law, your word in my heart? David had an affinity for the word. He had a relationship with God. He remained humbled toward the Lord. And on the other hand, some of you in here might have disqualified yourself because of your appearance. Maybe because you feel like you don't have the right image or you don't have the awesome spiritual resume or earthly resume. And if somebody were to look in on your life you would assume that they would say, man, how could God use me? You might have told yourself, if you knew what I have done, you wouldn't love me the same. If I was really open and vulnerable and shared my life with you, could you love me? Could God use me? And some of us have disqualified ourselves because of who we think we are based off our past, maybe where we find ourselves today, or we just can't fathom the idea of being called by God, set apart, and being used by him in a mighty, marvelous way. 
So what does this mean for you and for me? God is not waiting for you to have the right look because David didn't. He's not waiting for you to have amazing spiritual success. I mean, what resume did David have? I'm really good at shepherding sheep. That's about it. He's not waiting for you to get your image together so that he can do something with you or that you can finally start following Jesus. When I was 18 years old, I'm just going to give Pastor Peter credit to this quote. I don't know who said it, but from here on out, he said it. Uh, he, he told me when I was 18, I don't know if you remember this, but it was an LBJ um, right after one of our campus services. And he said, God does not call the qualified. He qualifies those whom he calls. And in that moment when he said that to me, man, something shook inside of me because 18 years old, I had just become a Christian, didn't know what a Bible was, could barely communicate the gospel. I knew how to pray, kind of, um, and I just loved God. And I thought to myself that I had to wait to get to a, a certain place, climbing the spiritual ladder before I could be used by God. And hearing that liberated me, that God can meet me right where I am and mold me and forge character and godliness and holiness and that I don't have to wait to get to a certain place. God can use me right now. It has nothing to do with my appearance. It has everything to do with your heart. So let's reset this scene for extra clarity. Samuel is the most important prophet in Israel. He comes on a mission to find a king. He states that God has chosen David. Oil gets poured down on his head. This was meant to anoint him, to consecrate him, to, to set him apart. This would visually represent spiritually too that God is pouring out his spirit on David. The spirit of God rushes upon him. And by no means, this is not a forgettable experience. However, as soon as this event is over, Samuel heads out and David goes back to tending sheep. What? Like, like surely Samuel would have told David, now follow me and I will make you a great king. Surely David would have been enlisted in some sort of awesome military training so that he could learn how to become a king. There was no interviews. There was no social media buzz. There wasn't even a robe or a crown. As David has this amazing moment with God, and in the very next chapter, he's back tending sheep. And this is familiar for a lot of us. We have these amazing mountaintop experiences with God where he comes into our lives and he's so faithful and he's so good. He answers all of the prayers we could have ever prayed. He reveals himself to us. Maybe you get saved at conference and this fire's in your heart and you're like, I'm gonna serve you all the days of my life. This is gonna be awesome. And then next week you're at your same job. You're back in class. You're at home changing diapers for a baby that doesn't appreciate you fully yet. <laughs> David has this amazing moment with God and where we find him next is in the same place where it all started in the pasture. And in fact, the next few scenes we have of David's life following this awesome anointing start with him in the pasture. Can you imagine how David is feeling? He is anointed king and still in the pasture. He's back in the pasture experiencing a very normal 
an ordinary life. And we experience the glory of God in our own lives. We experience his faithfulness. But when the, the oil settles and you're back in your ordinary routine, you find yourself questioning like, oh man, like what am I supposed to do now? But here's, what's amazing. here's what is amazing about God is that his ways are higher than our ways. And he will use David's environment, circumstances, even his afflictions to mold his heart into the king that God wants him to be. And this brings us to our second point. God uses the pastor to prepare the heart. God uses the pastor to prepare the heart. The pastor is where David most likely honed some of his most vital skills. If you grew up hearing stories about David, uh, he used a slingshot. David didn't learn how to use a slingshot in the palace sitting on the throne. He learned how to use a slingshot in the valley, in the pasture, tending sheep. In fact, in the very next chapter, when Goliath is terrorizing the Israelites, David comes up to Saul and he says, hey, send me, I'll take this guy out. In fact, when lions and bears would come after my sheep and take them away, I would take them out with my slingshot. And if they still had them, I would grab them by their beard and rip them apart and get my sheep. Like, that's pretty crazy and awesome and manly. Like, I'm like, oh, I need to go not do that. Um, In the pasture, David grew in courage, fending off lions and bears. You can read that in 1 Samuel 17. In the pasture, he probably also learned humility. As he's tending a helpless flock of sheep, knowing deep inside his heart that God has set him apart to be the king of Israel. Now that's ultimate humility. Caring for sheep that need a shepherd because on their own, they'll probably die. Cleaning them, bathing them, washing them, doing the same thing every single day, knowing in your heart, God has called me to something greater. And yet this is the grounds where God begins to mold character in David's life. Psalm 78, 72 says, with a pure heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. A pure heart is not molded in the palace, it's molded in the pasture. God uses your current circumstances, your current environment to forge character in you. And he's not waiting for you to get to this certain place in your life, Uh, a career checkpoint, graduate college, kids grow up, for him to start doing something in your life. He wants to use these places in your life as an arena to learn how to fend off lions and bears Craft, character, humility, and integrity. The Lord uses the pastor to prepare the heart. And this is what the Lord is doing among us today. Mothers who may feel undervalued changing diapers for unappreciative infants, you may experience your own pasture, but we can do it with joy if we realize that whatever we do, it's for the Lord. In the marketplace or work, wherever you your job is, you might feel like you're working in this dead-end job, unnoticed by your own supervisor, excruciating hours, just waiting to get out, waiting to move on. But if we work with faithfulness where we are, God can do magnificent things. I remember when I, I was sophomore in college, I worked at Walmart. My, my schedule was just really weird. I worked from 4 p.m. to 1 a.m., 
And my job was just to unload the trucks, sort the things out for the stalkers to stock the stuff. And uh, I, I was only a baby Christian. I mean, I'm seven years old now in the faith, so I'm not making as big of a mess as I was before. But I was just so newly saved, and I made it my mission that I'm just going to win every single person in here to the Lord. And I had no idea what I was doing. And so this team that I worked with, there's only seven of us, were probably the worst people that I had ever encountered. I mean, these guys were just so gruesome and vulgar and nasty. And uh, when they found out that I take Sundays off for church and Tuesdays off for growth group, they started calling me church man. Like, oh man, church man thinks he's better than us. And I was like, Mate, no, I'm just kidding. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, but, but there was this guy there named Shake, and Shake was the ringleader. And I said, if I can win Shake, I can win all these guys. And Shake was a single father working this job just so that he could provide for his kid. I would give him rides to work, rides to the doctor's office. We started this awesome friendship. He takes me out for lunch one day and says, church man, I'm going to buy you free birds. I said, I'm in. And, uh, we just have this awesome conversation. I get to share the gospel with him and we start this relationship. And from that moment forward, he was never the same. In fact, when we would work together and everybody would be cussing and telling naughty jokes, Sheikh would say, y'all be quiet because church man is here. And I'm like, all right, man, I'll take it. It's a start. But I, but I did not like this job. It was like lots of work, had to do it to pay rent and bills while I was in school. And I remember the Lord just convicting me and saying, hey, like, I see everything, okay? Other people might see your appearance, but I see your heart. And when I see your heart, I see you when nobody else is looking. And how you steward these moments will set you up for these future moments that God wants to introduce in our lives where he takes us from from glory to glory. Um, In other words, I could have cut corners, just been really lazy about work, but I remember the Lord convicting me and saying, work with integrity. Work hard. Because if you can be faithful with little, he'll trust you with much. And the Lord, I can look back and and have a little bit better context for that. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis is, day by day, nothing changes. But when you look back, everything looks so different. In the moment, I couldn't have seen what God is doing. But when I look back, I can say, man, God, you taught me so much about character and integrity. I would plug in my earphones and listen to podcasts and just hours of sermons while I was on work. And it was that place where the Lord really began to speak to me intimately and craft this relationship. In the pasture, God prepares the heart. I mean, students in here, uh, you might be eager to get out into the world and make a difference, pouring over books, learning material that you'll probably never use, okay? I'm just saying. Uh, But if you allow God, he can work in you and through you, forging character, patience, integrity, and using you to leave this campus different for his name's sake. Your pastor is your training ground. This is where the Lord wants to form character. When you're in the pasture in obscurity at work, at home, in class, in your family, when no one is looking, will you practice faithfulness and obedience to the Lord? Don't miss out on being present because we focus too much on being in the palace when the Lord wants to mold you in the pasture. 
Are you letting God use you at home, at work, at school? David was used by God in extraordinary ways, and the word lets us know that David's heart was humbly positioned towards God. In contrast to the previous king, David had a heart that was inclined towards God. David did whatever the Lord told him to do. And just as David was famous for having amazing mountaintop successes with the Lord, I mean, David experienced deep valleys of personal sin and moral failure. And yet, because he was repentant and faithful to God and the Lord dealt with him, he was still known as a man after God's own heart. Because unlike Saul, David's heart remained faithful, repentant, obedient, humble towards the Lord. David was committed to God. And when our hearts are after the heart of God, we position ourselves to be used by God. But power does not come from the pastor and it does not come from appearance. It comes from God. And this brings us to our last point. True power comes from God, the true king. The great aspects of David's life are the result of the spirit of God, not because of any greatness in him. David would be a picture of what God can do with someone as ordinary and far from extraordinary, brilliant, and powerful. It was only the spirit of God on David that made him great. And this is what we see in the Old Testament. When the spirit of God comes on people, they're able to do supernatural, amazing things for the glory of God. It was the spirit of God on Joseph that made him the, most power, the second most powerful man in all the land that allowed him to play a key role in relocating his family and seeing this promise of God played out. It was the spirit of God on Gideon that mobilized him to take 300 men and defeat an army of 100,000 without a single casualty. It was the same spirit that enabled the early church to endure incredible persecution, even when it cost their lives. And because of Jesus, he has poured out that very same spirit upon us, the same way that it was poured on David in verse 13. Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Nations will prize visible strength and great wealth, but true power comes from the hand of God. The greatness of Israel's kings has little to do with human greatness at all. What makes the advent of Israel's kings so significant in world history is what God would do through them and with them. And this is what we need, church. We need constant reminder that David's story is not about how awesome we can be, but it is meant to remind us of someone greater, Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. David prefigures Christ. David was rejected by his family, so is Jesus. David is anointed and goes back into the pasture. Jesus is anointed and goes into the wilderness. Jesus was a carpenter who didn't start his ministry until he was 30. David was a shepherd boy who did not have the appearance of a king. Jesus did not have the appearance of a king, but he was the king of kings. David possessed a heart after God's own heart, but like ours, you and me, our hearts are flawed and wicked. But Jesus' heart was perfectly obedient, faithful, and committed to God the Father. David's life specifically 
is the story of Israel's search for a king. That king has come and his name is Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, was the king of Israel, was the king the people of Israel were seeking. He alone could satisfy. He alone could protect. He alone could deliver. He alone can save us. Jesus lived and died for us. He does this so that we can be accepted by God, not based on our appearance or accomplishments or lack thereof, but solely based on his appearance, his accomplishments as the righteousness of God. When Jesus lives for us and dies for us, he does this so that he can turn our hearts from wicked, sinful hearts of stone into new, clean hearts washed in the blood of Jesus that are after the heart of God. Who among us can give us the heart, the type of heart that is faithfully after God's own heart. Jesus, the King of Kings. And it's only Jesus that can give us the power to faithfully serve in the pasture and give us a kingdom perspective. Whatever your pasture is, your home, your work, school, family, Jesus alone can give you the power to steward those areas of your life in such a way that it doesn't become just a means to an end, but it becomes the grounds where God forges character, godliness, holiness, and purpose for your good and his glory. Let's pray.